Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. You can support the show and get over a year's worth of bonus episodes over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. There is a link in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and by telling a friend about us. Just a note for this week, I am currently recovering from a mild concussion, so I have not been at my best. I am trying very hard. I'm just having some trouble focusing, and I wasn't really sure we were going to have an episode out this week, but I already had a case picked out, so I figured let's go ahead and make this happen. Now, on to today's case. It's officially October, and I decided to do Halloween cases again this month. And although Halloween is my favorite holiday, some people are dead set on ruining it with murders, as we have all learned from this podcast. Haha, I see what you did there. Today, we're going to Wagstaff in Miami County, Kansas in October 1984. This is one of the oldest crimes that we've covered on the show, but I thought, you know, we're going to just do an old one this time because Halloween, and I'm trying to avoid a lot of the really big ones, Plus all the ones we did last year, which were all Halloween. Wagstaff is the smallest community that we have covered on Bad Axe. Oh, wow. That's impressive considering we've covered some pretty small ones. Yeah. It's an unincorporated area in the county, which is Miami County. And it doesn't even have population numbers that I saw. However, it is in the Kansas City metropolitan area. So it's not exactly the middle of nowhere. However, I did see that some people were promoting it as like a ghost town that they had visited. And if you try to look up images, it's either images of other cities or really spooky buildings. Nice. Yeah, those are like the only confirmed images from Wagstaff are like spooky buildings. Nice. That's a good setting for today's case then. It is, except for what's happening with you, Wagstaff. They have a a train station apparently. That's happening. Train station goes well with a spooky ghost town, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. All right, so we're in Wagstaff. In fall 1984, 28-year-old Jean Ann Yackle was raising her three kids in Wagstaff. She had two daughters, 10-year-old Tamara Jo Massey, who went by Tammy, and 11-year-old Tiffany Dawn Massey. And she had a son, 8-year-old Brian Massey. Sometime in late 1983... Jean met 26-year-old David L. Andrews, and the two struck up a relationship. According to Andrews, they married sometime during that next year. And because of that, in court documents, she's sometimes referred to as Jean and Young Andrews instead of by her maiden name, Jean Yackle. I wanted to use Yackle because that's the name that her family currently uses for her. And so I wanted to respect that by using that in this episode. Makes sense. Though the two stayed together... Andrews was not a good husband and stepfather. He emotionally abused Jean and her kids. And he and Jean had some awful arguments. 
Although that abuse was really bad, he did something even worse to Brian. Trigger warning for the next few seconds. Because Andrews sexually abused eight-year-old Brian. Man, that sucks. Like, he's pedophile people are just the worst. Yeah, they are. And this wasn't exactly new behavior for Andrews. Unbeknownst to Gene, Andrews had a diabolical history. He had been violent on multiple occasions, including one incident that really sticks out. One night, he got very drunk and had a big fight with his brother, and in a fit of rage, he drunkenly stabbed his brother. Oh, shit. I think his brother was okay because this wasn't reported as a murder, but, I mean, he stabbed his brother. Yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah, that's a huge red flag. It's very bad. <laughs> yeah, I do not think I would date anyone who had stabbed their brother. Yeah, well, he wasn't exactly <laughs> telling Gene all of this. He wasn't like, hi, yeah. Gene, I'm a terrible person who stabs people. Oh, no, yeah. I, I mean, I, I get that that's not first date material. I'm just saying, like, you know, if if you found out later that somebody had, like, stabbed somebody, you'd be mm-hmm. like, uh, maybe not. Yeah, let's not let's not be together anymore. This is a bad plan. Yeah, be like, I gotta go... Get some get some milk and cigarettes at the store and not come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he did stab his brother. And even though this wasn't a murder, he wasn't exactly living a crime-free life because he wasn't even supposed to be a free man. Because Andrews was actually an escaped prisoner. Really? Yes. And it gets even more like what than that. Wow. This is what happened. On November 9th, 1983, Andrews escaped from a minimum security prison camp in Grayling, Michigan, which was called Camp Lemon. That's an interesting name. Yeah. Well, Lemon as a last name. L-E-H-M-A-N. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think the guy that he, it was named after was like a World War II veteran, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, makes sense. So Camp Lemon was open from 1948 to 2009. And it housed up to 582 male prisoners who provided low-wage labor for conservation projects. So this was billed as like, oh, hey, we're going to totally help out some prisoners and give them this, like, minimum security, more, um, it's, what's it called when you're, like, nicer to people and it's better? This oh. is the concussion, people. <laughs> I literally can't remember the word that I'm looking for. Humane, maybe? That's not the word, but we'll go with humane. You guys know what I'm talking about. It was considered to be, like, better for the prisoners, except for it was really just better for the projects they were trying to get done because these conservation projects were a lot cheaper if they had low-wage prisoners to do their job. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so essentially it was like, hey, guys, like, what about this great new prison system? Which, in some ways, I have mixed feelings about. To me, anything with a prison camp in it sounds like a bad idea. Yep. Like, I just don't think that sounds like a happy place for anyone. It sounds like both a a very uncomfortable place to live as a prisoner and also not very secure. That's true. Which, what's the point in having prisoners at this point? Yeah. Apparently, also, too, it was considered like an honor code prison where they're like, don't do the wrong thing, wink, wink. When, isn't that how this, they got to the prison to begin with? You would think so. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's certain crimes you could definitely do honor code with. And I'm not sure exactly what they are. But I feel like if you were, like, doing crime because of poverty to, like, live, that seems like something you could probably go to, like honor code prison for to like get some education and 
you know, figure out how to improve your life or whatever without having to do the crimes. But, like, spoilers, one of his crimes had been sexual assault. And, yeah, so it's like, that's not something that you honor code your way into. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't sound like a minimum security prison situation. Like, when I was in high school, we lived, like, our our neighborhood was next to a minimum security prison. Oh, no. uh, Yeah, and, like... Also, we're not, like, yay prisons here. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, like, those those folks, they had, like, like a farm land. It's like they would go work farms. And, like, if memory serves, they had, like, little um, security people. I think they might have been on... Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if they were on horses or not. Like I think I'm there was, sure they were on horses. It's Texas. There's like a zero percent chance that there wasn't a horse involved in this. <laughs> I do recall horses, but I can't like visualize it perfectly in my brain because my brain don't work like that. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, but like they didn't really have like like there were no real precautions to keep them from getting out because I think they just yeah. had like regular like farm fences if that makes sense. Oh, so like okay. if you wanted to to hop it and go theoretically yeah. you could. So the only barrier is if you're like too like like fat now shaped to like roll over the fence yeah and i say that because i personally feel like in this moment i could not roll over the fence especially because i hurt my knee while i hurt my head so i would not be able to climb that fence (laughs) it'd be hard to do with a bum knee for sure yeah it literally can be like the lowest fence and i would be like oh no like yeah like i'm totally trapped here yeah but i mean honestly it feels like it wouldn't be that hard to escape you might not get yeah. far if you did escape, though, because they had signs everywhere, like, don't pick up hitchhikers and stuff. So Yeah, someone's still going to do it, though. Probably, yeah. I, I feel like if you tried to escape, it, you wouldn't be gone. Like, they'd, they'd find you. But mm. if you wanted to get out, like, in in this day and age, you know, like, yeah. they'd find you somewhere. Maybe. Like, they got cameras and stuff. Probably. But, in 1984, they sure wouldn't find you, though. Yeah, exactly. So it seems reasonable that he might escape. Although, ironically, they're going to find him, but wait for it. All right. Okay. So he was in this prison for multiple crimes. And I do need to note this is important because I told y'all that this prison camp closed in 2009. Guess what day it closed on? Halloween. Halloween for real Z's. It closed on Halloween. That's wild, right? That is wild. It's not just me. No, it's not just me. Okay. So I included that. I had to include the dates so that you guys would understand. (laughs) And because I also, when I first found out what this was, I was like, are they still doing that? Like, that sounds like old timey. Like, we didn't know any better. Like, it costs a lot to build prisons. Like, argh. yeah, this doesn't sound like a modern day solution. Yeah. Aside from if you're taking advantage. I don't think it's right for them to make prisoners work for low wages. Like, I get it. It's like, it's a, it's a weird situation. I just don't think that's right. Also, unless they want to, to earn money for themselves. And it shouldn't be like taking advantage. I don't know. I just don't like when people take advantage of people. Yep. All right. Although this guy is a poopy. We don't like him. So after escaping Camp Lemon, Andrews moved to Kansas and started a new life. He met Gene and they got together. His criminal past. <laughs> sorry, I included that for Aaron. If you recall, criminal past is a thing that we like from Night A Fiance. Yeah. Uh, his criminal past almost caught up with him, though, because he was arrested again in Kansas on July 19th, 1984, and Michigan actually tried to get him back at first. Michigan filed the paperwork to extradite Andrews back to Michigan to both finish out his prison sentence and to face charges for escape. The Michigan governor issued a warrant for his arrest, but officials ended up quashing this warrant. And it appears that it had something to do with the Michigan Parole Board and the correction system which quashed this warrant because later on this would become an incident. 
Interesting. Yeah. And so the warrant was never served, and he was just let out to go back home to Gene. Wow. Yeah. Which turned out to be a fateful decision. Yeah. As you may have concluded from listening to, the, to a true crime episode about the situation. Yeah. Halloween 1984 would change the lives of the family forever. That night, 11-year-old Tiffany asked her best friend, Kathy Mayer, if she could sleep over. But unfortunately, that was not a good night for Mayer because she had other plans. So Tiffany stayed home with her mom and her siblings. And they were still planning to have a fun night. That night, Brian, Tamara, and Tiffany planned to go trick-or-treating. Unfortunately, they never got the chance, and none of their neighbors saw the kids stop by for candy that night. It was like no one was home at their house. Then, on the morning of November 1st, 1984, police received a phone call about Jean's home. Miami County Sheriff's Office Deputy Randy Cornelius was the first officer to arrive at the crime scene. He was actually a new officer, and decades later, he still says that the images he saw that night, or that day, I should say, never left him. Deputy Cornelius told the Miami County Republic, quote, There wasn't a wall in that house that didn't have blood on it, unquote. Dude, that is grisly. It's extremely grisly. Yeah, that would definitely stay with you. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think you could ever scrub those kind of images from your mind. Mm-mm. Man. After entering the home, Deputy Cornelius immediately saw Jean's body lying on the floor in the living room just inside the front door. Her body had multiple stab wounds and she was surrounded by a pool of blood. There was also another pool of blood nearby by the telephone, which the police wouldn't understand for a really long time for reasons that I will tell you about when it makes sense. The officer continued moving through the crime scene looking for Jean's kids, and he found a horrific sight. Tamara and Tiffany lay together, their bodies hidden in the corner of the bedroom between a bed and the wall. Both had died from stab wounds. No. But where were little Brian and his stepfather, David? Yeah. Police tracked David Andrews to his sister's house in Port Huron, Michigan, on November 2nd, 1984, two days after the murders. That was how long it took for him to drive from Kansas, from Wagstaff, Kansas, over to Port Huron was the full two days. He wasn't alone. Along with Andrews, officers located eight-year-old Brian. As police closed in on the house where Andrews was trying to stay, which was his sister's house, he decided that he didn't want to go to prison again. And so he tried to end his life by shooting himself. However, his plan quickly went awry because he survived this gunshot and Michigan police were able to arrest him and they took him to the hospital so that doctors could treat his gunshot wound And during this time, they kept him under close guard, though, because he was officially under arrest. And at that point, they charged him with the crimes they could charge him with, which included kidnapping and sodomy. But the first-degree murder charges would be added later. It took some time to get him back to Kansas to stand trial, though. Andrews actually remained in Michigan until December 1984, which was a bit over a month after the murders. Meanwhile, Brian's grandparents, Roy and Joyce Yackel, 
who were Gene's parents, drove to Michigan to pick him up and take him home after Andrews' arrest. They arrived together as a family back in Kansas on November 4th, 1984, four days after the murder. They started the slow process of rebuilding their lives as they waited for the wheels of justice to turn. Because he had witnessed the murder, Brian could explain what happened that night. And he has, in the time since this happened, told his story. But we had to wait a while for that because initially the police didn't want to push him too hard because he was very traumatized after what he went through. Of course. And they didn't have the forensic techniques we have now, which allegedly, according to experts, would have made it easier to talk to him. They just basically had normal questioning procedures and they felt like trying to talk to him about what he experienced would be too much trauma to like, they just didn't want to do it. They were like, we don't want to ask him what happened even though he witnessed the crime because he's going to be more traumatized. So basically they got some information for him, but they did not press him on any details or ask him like specific questions they had about the crime because they didn't want to traumatize him more. That makes sense. But this is what Brian has said happened. According to Brian, his mother, Jean got into an argument with Andrews that Halloween And she reached her limit with him. And in the heat of the moment, she kicked him out of her house. And basically, it sounded like she had broken up with him, which would be excellent. Andrews left, but he didn't stay gone long. He returned later that night to face off with Jean a second time. The pair began arguing again, and this time, Andrews got really violent. Jean realized that she needed help during this argument, and she was afraid. And so she ran to the phone to call her dad. And she basically wanted her dad to come over, which makes me feel sad because I wish she could have called, like, emergency services. But her dad was, like, the person that she thought of as her safety, and so that's who she tried to call. And since all this was happening in 1984, she had to go to her landline. Sadly, she never got to make that call because that's when Andrews grabbed a knife and stabbed Jean over and over again. And Brian has said that this was a butcher knife that he was using. Oh, wow. Yeah. In total, he stabbed Jean around 30 times. Dude, that is so many times. That is so many times. Also, how do you even stab someone that many times and then continue criming? Yeah, legit. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So... That is why there was blood by the phone. And the police didn't know that because they didn't realize she had tried to go make a phone call because her body was like closer towards the door. But essentially later on when Brian was freely speaking about the crime, that's when those dots came together that it was just that she had gone to make a phone call whenever he attacked her. In fear, the kids went to hide because they realized what was happening because all three kids are home and they're witnessing the start of this. Brian went to his room, and his sisters went to their room. The girls squeezed between the bed and the wall, which is why they were stuffed in there, as they were hiding from him. And they were basically hoping that their stepfather wouldn't see them, which makes total sense. They're 10 and 11. I totally thought that you couldn't see me behind my bed or under my bed. Like, there were certain things I feel like as kids, or like under the covers. I don't know if you ever had, like, a period of time where you felt like under the covers... I always felt like if I had a pillow or like a teddy bear on top of me that I was invisible hmm. and that they would, people would just, or aliens, because I was afraid of being abducted by aliens, just being real. I watched Unsolved Mysteries a lot and had a very bad alien fear. 
And I thought that they would just be like, oh, this is just some teddy bears. Yeah. I'm going to leave. So I can totally understand this idea of just like trying to hide behind your bed, which is what they tried to do. But of course he found them and he attacked them too, just unleashing his fury on them as well with this butcher knife. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, he stabbed both girls to death as well. And during all these stabbings, he did slice through his own hand and cut himself. Yeah, as you do when you're on a stabbing mm-hmm. rampage. Yeah, yeah, as people often do because there's blood everywhere and it's slippery. Now, unfortunately, this they knew he cut his hand, but they weren't able to recover his DNA because this was 1984. And so they tried to do their best with like collecting blood evidence. And they did. It's just that they didn't have the technology to split out his DNA as well as they could have now. So even though they knew that he was like the person who had done it, this came back to being like a little bit more of a struggle to like show through like forensic evidence in some ways. That makes sense. It does. So he cut himself, but they didn't collect enough of his DNA there. While the girls were bleeding out, Andrews turned his attention to Brian. According to Brian, he entered the room covered in blood. Well, I mean, that makes sense given what's happened. Yeah. And additionally, Brian has said that Andrews, even in that moment right after he'd murdered all of them, did not have remorse. That he never expressed any kind of remorse. That he was just totally savage and just an animal. And with no caring at all towards the people that he had just murdered. I mean, that tracks. I mean, you'd have to have, like, a lack of empathy to do something like this in the first place, I think. hmm I mean, obviously that sucks and it's super scary, but, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. After coming into the room that night, Andrews told Brian, quote, If you do not listen and obey, I will kill you, unquote. And by this point, Brian knew that Andrews was telling the truth because he had just killed Brian's mother and sisters. And at that point, Brian says that he just went into survival mode. And he described it as shutting down his emotions so that he could just get through the ordeal alive. And I think that it makes it harder for, in some ways for him to like talk about what happened because of the fact that you know he is like the lone survivor. And I guess maybe, I feel like if I were the lone survivor in that situation, I would definitely feel the need to, like, justify what happened. But you don't need to do that. He's eight years old. And this crazy psycho idiot is, like, killing his whole family and abducting him. That's so horrific. Yeah, it is. I mean, it makes sense that he would do whatever he was told because he doesn't want to get stabbed. Yeah. Nobody wants to get stabbed, like, as a general rule. Unless, I mean, if you do want to get stabbed, you probably have some problems. No offense. Every once in a while, I guess, there is a crime case where someone's like, I want to be eaten. Yeah. I want to clarify that that is not something that I want. Yeah, there's always an exception to the rule, but, like, that's, you know. Yeah, I just feel sad for him because it feels like he needs to, that he, I, it is my impression and speculation, which I know some people hate, but I'm doing it anyway, that he feels the need to explain that he shut down and that he was just in survival mode because he feels like he needs to explain his actions of, like, going with this psycho when he doesn't need to explain that. Yeah. Like, we all would do that. Legit. So, he did manage to get through this situation alive, which is awesome. And also, um, first of all, everyone's happy that he's alive. And second of all, it totally gives an insight into what happened. Yep. And I think it's really helped in making sure that people really know the whole story. Because, and we'll see a little bit more why in a minute. Are you into true crime? 
Do you like unsolved mysteries? Strange and forgotten history? Bizarre alien abductions and classified science experiments? Then check out Cruelty Podcast. We're your hosts, Willow Ahava, along with my best friend and next door neighbor, Lillian Asterius, and my husband, Meriwether Asterius. Maris, say hi. Hello. Maris, short for Meriwether, and I host Maris Mondays as a bonus episode each week to start your Monday with something strange and unusual. While the rest of the week, Lillian and I present a true crime case under a monthly theme and feature known and not so known cases. We've done everything from vampire month to honeymoon murders to cannibal killers. Cruelty Podcast is an independent podcast made possible by our Patreon members. If you would like ad-free listening plus additional episodes and perks, find Cruelty Podcast at patreon.com slash cruelty. Whoa, that's four whole episodes a week. Linktree slash Cruelty has links to all our social media accounts as well as our Discord channel. Cruelty Podcast is a member of the Podmoth Network. So, as I told you before, the police didn't want to ask Brian to tell them everything because they didn't want to traumatize him. So they, they asked him limited information basically but what brian said happened after the murders was that andrews drove brian to his sister's house in port huron which is where they found them and that this trip had taken a total of two days and although andrews did decide to keep brian alive he did it for a dark reason i'm sure some of you have figured out trigger warning for the next few seconds again while alone with Brian, Andrews sexually assaulted him multiple times. Uh, yep. And that's obviously the reason why he kept him alive, was yeah, to do that. that's awful. Mm-hmm. While investigators questioned Andrews, he claimed that he couldn't remember what happened that Halloween night. Like, just conveniently, I have no memory. Yeah, how convenient that is. Yes. He told mental health professionals at the Menninger Foundation later that he didn't remember the murders because he was heavily drunk. But that he did remember grabbing a knife that Halloween night. And he also remembered a lot of screaming. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't really believe that he doesn't remember. But, I mean, whatever. Yeah, he's definitely lying about the not remembering. Like, he's... Mm -hmm. I mean, he's definitely lying and trying to just get away with him and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I was crazy. It's not my fault because I don't remember. Yeah, I had an like oopsie. That. Yeah. And that's, I was just very drunk. Yeah, which is no excuse. No, it's not an excuse. I feel like we learned from that one case that yeah. if you make yourself, even if you don't remember or if you do do terrible things because you're on drugs or alcohol or whatever, it's still your fault. Because you made that choice. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you chose originally to take the drugs or do the alcohol or whatever it is. I mean, unless, like, you were drugged, but you know what I mean. Like, that almost never happens. Yeah. I'm thinking of, like, Criminal Minds episodes where, like, they drug somebody. Like, that doesn't count. You're not on Criminal Minds. Like, unless you are on Criminal Minds and a, you know, crazy, super smart serial killer is, like, kidnapping you or something. Yeah. Or, like, the one where they put the smoke in the room. (laughs) The smoke monster thing. Yeah. Like, the chances of that happen. I mean, like, I'm sure it Obviously, happens. it didn't happen here, but yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's so rare, you know? Much more likely yes. is you lied. And then is he going to try to say that happened all the other times he committed crimes? Uh-huh. Like, that he was just, like, so overcome with drinking. He just has bad luck. Yeah, I, I feel like after you stab your brother whilst drunk, that's when you stop drinking. 
Yeah, that would be a pretty yeah. clear rock bottom, I would think, for most people. Exactly, for most people. And I say that I love wine, but, like, if I ever stabbed someone, which I'd probably be in jail, but, like, let's just go with it, and somehow got away with it, I would stop drinking. Like, I would go to a program or something if yeah. it was that bad. Because, like, you kind of have to, I feel like. Yeah. If you've reached stabbing. Yeah, that that's a definitely a go-to-AA situation or yeah, whatever, or whatever program. program. Yeah, because, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a bad choice. It's a bad choice. Yeah. I just want to remind everyone to just think that this entire tragedy could have been avoided if the Michigan justice system had just retrieved Andrews from Kansas and put him back in jail where he belonged. Yeah. They knew about it. They knew he was dangerous. They did nothing. And after this whole crime, Brian, with the help of his, his family that were, he was living with, actually sued, like everybody connected to this like as long list of basically anyone who and everyone from the guy who oversaw camp lemon to like the parole board people to the other like corrections prison corrections people in michigan saying that they allowed this to happen by both a not catching him they not like not actually going through with the extradition and like fulfilling the warrant and b not warning Jean and her kids that they were living with a freaking violent predator. Yeah. And unfortunately that case was dismissed because the, the court basically said that the like people in the system don't have any type of like duty to let you know that you're living with a predator. They like, they can have to tell like society in general, but not you specifically. And same thing with, like, arresting people to protect you. And also, there are specific rules that if the parole board lets somebody out and they murder someone, that the parole board's not at fault. So they were like, the parole board doesn't count either. Yikes. I kind of understand that in a way, but it, it, I don't know. I feel like in this case, it seems like a mistake was made. I feel like negligence shouldn't count. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, like, it it is tricky to kind of make a blanket rule for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like, clearly looking at this case, things mistakes were made, right? Yeah. Like, I don't understand how you can just say, hey, this guy ran away and we're going to give him parole after that. Because, like, isn't parole for people who follow the rules and did the right thing? Yeah, and ready exactly. To go? Like, running running away from prison and hiding out is not, this is someone I should parole. Right. Exactly. There's people that, that do more time after they try to escape from prison than actual murderers yeah. because they just keep adding time on for escaping. Yeah. And it's wild to me that this guy, they were like, well, oh, whatever. That just seems like this whole case seems like it happened in like 1930 or something. Yeah. Like it makes me think of like, like Bonnie and Clyde or whatever. Cause yeah. I think one of them had escaped like a prison work camp or some nonsense. Not one, not necessarily one of those two, but I feel like someone in the Blondie and Clyde story did. Maybe I'm imagining that, but like where back in the those olden days when sometimes they would just be like, oh whatever, like like shrug. Yeah. It's more effort to get to track him down. Let's just well, he'll get shot one day. It's <laughs> it's fine. Like that kind of nonsense. Yeah. And I'm just like, how is this 1984 when this guy like literally just like escaped i feel like he had to have had had help or something like did someone at the prison camp know were they just like chill with it It just seems weird that nobody felt the need to go get him that's true like y'all are just fine don't y'all at least feel embarrassed or something like hell even like the guy in arrested development you know when the warden keeps being like he's humiliated me or whatever yeah yeah 
that is a fictional show, obviously, but yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to say that these people should like let their ego affect their decisions, but I also don't think they should let their lack of desire to do just to, ouch to do stuff. Sorry, I touched my concussion, <laughs> my 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 head wound. Anyway, I don't think they should let their desire to not do this. <laughs> yeah, to not do their like jobs. literal children died and yeah. a lady and this other kid got seriously like harmed. Yeah, by this. This guy, this Andrews guy, who's a monster. I mean, not a monster because we shouldn't call people monster, but he's a bad person, essentially. Yes, he's he a bad is. human. And he was harming people. And this could have been prevented. Yeah. He, he should have been in jail where he belonged, where he was supposed to be. Yep. So that is something that I wanted to note here. And and I'm sad that his suit got dismissed. Because I, like, I feel like at least part of that suit, like, I understood part of the arguments, but there was part of it I was like, mm, I don't know. This one seems like negligence. I feel like if you're negligent, it shouldn't count that you get, like, some kind of immunity or whatever from your decisions. Okay. So, let's talk about the trial, or almost trial. Miami County Attorney David Hager, who was the prosecutor in this case, initially wanted to try Andrews for first-degree murder. Three counts of first-degree murder. However, he realized during this whole case investigation situation that he wasn't sure that he would be able to prove that Andrews was premeditating these crimes because he appeared to be unstable. Also, the case had a huge issue because investigators never found the knife used to kill Jean, Tammy, and Tiffany. And it wasn't until 2007 when they found out that Andrews actually had thrown that knife in a dumpster on the drive from Kansas to Michigan. And the reason why they didn't find it out until 2007 is because Brian had actually witnessed this on their, on the trip because he was there. But police didn't ask him for that detail because they were trying not to traumatize him. But he shared it voluntarily in 2007. And so that's when they were like, oh. Yeah. It's also when they found out about the phone thing. Because police never found this weapon, Brian might be the only way that they had to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Andrews was the only person who could have committed this horrible crime. Because Brian witnessed it, if they put him on the stand to testify, he could tell the jury what happened, and they felt pretty confident that they would get a conviction. However, the prosecutor, and basically everyone involved, did not want Brian to have to testify to what happened because of all the aforementioned trying to prevent trauma. Yeah. So, the prosecution decided to offer Andrews a plea deal. And on May 13th, 1985, Andrews accepted the plea deal. He pled guilty to three counts of second-degree murder, and the prosecution dropped the charges for kidnapping and sodomy. Andrews went before a judge for sentencing in June 1985, and the judge gave him three sentences of 15 years to life in prison to be served consecutively. That means that his full sentence is 45 years to life. So, yay. Yay. However, Kansas has a sneaky little law that allows prisoners to seek parole after serving at least half of their sentence. And because of that, Andrews could actually apply for release after serving just 22 and a half years in prison for the triple murder. He first came up for parole in 2007. Brian Massey, his family, and his family friends all attended the parole hearing to speak out against Andrews' release. And they were able to convince the parole board to keep him in prison and to delay the next parole opportunity for 10 years. Good. 
This is also when a lot of investigators learned the full extent of what had happened because Brian essentially told the entire story to the parole board and filled in a lot of these gaps because now he's a grown man and he's like, this is what happened to me. Yeah. In September 2017, Andrews came up for parole a second time. And this was a move that Brian and his supporters strongly opposed for obvious reasons. The day before the parole hearing, and I should say it's not really the parole hearing hearing, it's like the part where they could speak out against parole, Brian and his aunt Dorothy Delgado visited the graves where they had lain Jean, Tamara, and Tiffany to rest so that they could both remember them and so they could ask for strength in telling their story again. And they brought a reporter along on this trip and talked about how they felt like they were with them and all that and how they were getting this strength from visiting and how they felt better and all that. On September 25th, Brian Massey attended the parole hearing along with his family members and several childhood friends of Tamara and Tiffany. And I just want to point out that the fact that people are still showing up for them, like friends especially, that aren't family members, really shows what an impact that these little girls made during their short lives. That at 10 and 11, they had people that still to this day, like, mourn their loss that are, are not just family members. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Oh. All of these people gave heartbreaking testimony to the parole board about how the murders affected their lives and how much they missed Jean, Tammy, and Tiffany. They asked the parole board to keep Andrews in prison. And no one actually testified on Andrews' behalf. So, haha. Which tracks, yeah. Yeah, that tracks. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who would show up to do that. I mean, because he murdered his wife. Yeah, he murdered everybody who cared about yeah, him or stabbed them. I mean, I, got, I know he has, like, the sister whose house he went to, but I have a feeling <laughs> that she might have been like, oh, no. Yeah. Like, I don't know for sure that she called the cops on him, but it is interesting that they found him, like, right away after he got there. That is. And kind of makes me wonder if she was all like, oh, he is not staying here. Mm. I'm not letting this murder in my house. No. Type, type, type. Hello, please. Yeah. Which I get, because I would also be like, hey, I just need to go in there. Make a quick phone call. Yeah, if you could just, like, not be around, that would be great. Like, I need to go visit the neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just, uh, yeah, go eat some food in the kitchen. I'll be over there. Um, Don't try to come inside. Yeah. So, in November 2017, the parole board announced that they had denied Andrews' parole, and he'll be eligible again in November 2027, when he is 69 years old. If he is denied parole again in 2027, then it's very likely that he's going to be released in 2029 after serving 45 years. Because he does have 45 years to life, but it looks like he'll most likely be released in 2029. And then he'll be 71 years old at that time. Which we have all learned, I feel like, from true crime, that that's still young enough to go commit, to commit more crimes. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, that's only, what, seven years away and in 2017, whenever they had, like, posted his mugshot, that's the latest one, he didn't even look, he did not look, like, haggard at all. Like, he still looked fully capable of horrible murders. Yeah. Like, he looked definitely, like, he's he looked a little husky. Like, he could definitely have enough, like, like energy or whatever to carry out more crimes. Yeah. That's my opinion. And I know some people hate it when we share opinions, but I'm doing it anyway. I don't know why I always feel like I need to explain that. Like, that person's going to leave a one-star review anyway, but... <laughs> yeah. just, like, that's... I like it when people share opinions. That's why we're here. Otherwise, we could just, like, I guess, read a book. I don't know. I love books, but you know what I mean. I got you. Look, we're... 
We have opinions. We're human beings. I mean. Yeah. I mean, know. heck, like, everyone loves. What's that FBI lady that we all like from Deadly Women? What's her name? Do you know? Candace Long. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Sorry. I really can't remember stuff, y'all. It's the head thing. Anyway, it's like she loves sharing her opinion. Like, she has, like, four million weird murder puns that are about <laughs> her opinion that, she's, that she shares constantly. That's why we watch her shows. If she didn't tell us the reason why someone was evil using a terrible pun, we would be sad. That's true. Like, seriously. So, I don't know why people are such a hoe about this, but... That's right. They are. Okay, so... The family buried Jean, Tiffany, and Tamara beside each other in Hillsdale Cemetery, where they still visit to talk to them. The people who knew and loved the mother and daughters will never forget them, so they'll live on forever. And after all these years... The murders of Jean, Tammy, and Tiffany are still considered one of the worst crimes in Miami County, Kansas, for reasons that I think are obvious. Yeah, indeed. Like, that's so much stabbing. Yeah. And also, the little girls crammed between between the bed and the wall. That's just, like, horror movie-esque. Yeah, that's hard. And it's just sad. Yeah, it's, like, super sad. And all on Halloween, when people should be having fun and wearing costumes and eating candy. People have got to stop murdering people on Halloween. I feel like that's going to be my, like, next thing for, like, next year. We're going to start a petition. I don't even know how you, you you petition for less murders. I don't know either. I mean, I guess you just start it up and see. Maybe you'll get, you know, a million signatures and then it And then people the- will stop. It goes to the murderers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they just send it to the murderers. Like, how does that even work? Just an open letter to the murderers, like, hey, we've all signed a petition. Like, you have to stop murdering. And they're like, oh, no. Now that a million people have signed, I can't murder anymore. Is that what we do? I don't know. Yeah. I totally, I totally don't know. It's just reminding me of, I recently, um, if you're on Reddit, I'm on Reddit too. I recently got a whole bunch of, like, upvotes because I'd shared a local headline that some witty reporter that I feel like is one of my soulmates had written (laughs) and it was about how like, as people know, I have repeatedly complained about Greg Abbott. Um, He said, and in response to the whole, no rapes, no rape victim abortions, that he was just going to stop all rapes. Like he literally said that, like those were the words that he said. Yep. And which is ridiculous. Like, are you kidding me? And somebody had published an article locally that said that Christ, that is entitled something along the lines of crisis center calls are up despite plan to end all rapes or something like that. Yeah. And I shared it over there because it is like, I feel like it really encapsulates the absurdity of certain people and what's happening right now with laws and like politics, because there are so many things that are just like, Oh yeah, we're just going to do this. Yeah. It's like, we don't need to plan for things because we're just going to make it where that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, right? that's ridiculous. Yeah. And also, like, it would be great if we could end all rapes. But, like, I mean, that's not... that You can't just say you're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Like, he didn't even have a plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but right. anyway, also, why don't we also eliminate all murders while we're at it, is what I was going to get to. If our petition has enough signatures, maybe... We can maybe can just target rapes as well. We can be like, end all rapes. And then they'll be like, oh, I guess we can't do it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Because there is a million signatures. Yep. And that's the magic number. I guess. I guess that's the magic number. That makes sense. But anyway, you can just, I guess, someone can start that petition. Maybe it'll be me. I don't know. Maybe we can just make, like, we can just make a frowny face sticker that can be the symbol 
and we just put the frowny faces everywhere. <laughs> I just like I'm spreading sadness, and other people spread joy, and I'm just spreading frowny face pictures. But yeah, it's it's my head wound talking, Aaron. It's my head wound. It's like it's healing, you guys. I fell and I hit my head on a wall. Well, it's not like a wall. It was like an entryway molding. And I just like my whole head just like crashed into it. Like my head kind of broke my fall and then my knee broke the rest of my fall. Very sad. Okay. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope that this episode was interesting for you and that I didn't do like a terrible job because my head hurts and I'm like kind of not totally focused. I think you did a wonderful job. Thank you. I'm having trouble remembering a few things, but it's okay. If you would like to follow us on social media, our handle is at BadXPod. We have a website. BadXPod.com. And we have a Gmail. BadXPod at gmail.com. Yep. And I feel like, oh, we have the Patreon. Yep. Backslash BadXPod. Yeah. And there's like, there's a link in our show notes and we have so many episodes over there now. It's like, I've lost count. It's over a year's worth. And we're about to hit our two-year mark. We're very close to our two-year pod anniversary, And so, after only a, I think we started the Patreon like a couple months into the podcast. So, we're probably going to have two years worth of bonus content pretty soon. That's right. And I have stickers that I have need to send out to some people. And you could also receive those stickers. And one of them is really cool. It has a cat on it. All of them are cool. One of them says true crime expert on it. And there's one that says no crime, no body. Because that is a joke, right? Yeah, it's that's a running joke says. that we have. Yeah. And it's a joke that we have because if you don't commit crimes, you don't have to get rid of bodies. Because that's hard. Like, a lot of people don't know. Yeah. I mean, we don't also know that. We, 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 only we know, know from watching TV. Yeah, we know from from consuming Ooh, true crime just how hard it is. we went to this medical examiner's presentation. <laughs> We've actually seen some really creepy stuff. Because, like, yeah. he had... There's a famous case that I'm sure all of our listeners know about where this lady in Houston killed her boyfriend with her high heel shoe and we saw the pictures of the actual crime scene at that presentation i don't like looking at crime scene photos but i looked at them in order to be a butt in a seat basically so they would let us have more true crime content at this local convention that we go to and i'm like advocating for more true crime content so i was like i need to go to the actual presentations so they'll see that people are interested so i looked at crime scene photos for all of our other true crime buffs and it was kind of interesting, though, because I don't think they've... I, I, there's no way that they've shown them on any of the shows. I've seen shows about her, and I also know that True Crime, Crime Campfire did an episode about this case recently. Or maybe not recently. At some point, they did a case. I think they did it on a Patreon episode, though, now that I'm thinking about it. But regardless, they did talk about it at some point. And they normally don't have crime scene photos on shows and stuff. But he was able... He worked on the case, so he was able to share like photos from cases he worked on and I knew what he was going to say it was as soon as he brought the picture up and he was like what do you think these wounds are from and I was like oh my god I bet you it was that high hill case in my mind and then sure enough that's what it was and I was like oh my god it was gruesome I don't want to look at that but anyway that was interesting and also as an, another interesting fun fact that's kind of like macabre is that we go to the vet office that used to be owned by another true crime person here in Houston, there was a boyfriend and girlfriend that planned to murder their exes. Um, the guy's name is Leon something. Jacobs, maybe? Jacobs, yes, is Jacobs. And then the girl's name, I think was, I think her last name was like McDonald, maybe? I don't remember her name. It was something like that. And we go to her vet office. 
not on purpose. We just lived like one minute away from it. And then whenever we got there and I saw the actual name, I was like, wait a minute. This was in the true crime show. And I looked it up and I was like, son of a... Yeah. I can't believe that we accidentally go to this this lady's vet office that she no longer has because of her fate. That is sad. Even though she did something wrong. Anyway, we are going to end this because now I'm talking about unrelated information. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you soon. Have a very happy and safe October and we should be back next week with with hopefully um, slightly more coherent statements from me. Bye-bye. Bye.